Coming to you from the Philadelphia area, this is the Westchester Church Podcast. Check us out at westchestercfc.com. Westchestercfc.com. We've been talking a lot about transformation this year. And what transformation looks like so often is us taking one step forward and then three steps back. How many times have we been in a worship service and we take one giant step forward with everybody else on Sunday morning only to take three giant steps back on Monday afternoon? You know, even though that so oftentimes is what transformation is, we have a lot of encouragement because our Bibles are full of people just like us. In Matthew chapter 16, we see Peter take one giant step forward. Where Jesus asks his disciples a question and he says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? They say, well, some say it's John the Baptist, others Elijah, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But then Jesus says, but what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it's in this moment where we hear Peter exuberantly announce and proclaim that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but only my Father in heaven could have revealed this to you. And then he gives him the keys to the kingdom and says that upon this rock, that you are the rock, and upon you I will build my church. And we all know what this means later on in the book of Acts. And yet we just feel so happy and so proud of Peter as we read in this juncture of the Gospels that he's getting it. He's growing and he's learning. And he's taking a giant step forward on Sunday morning. But then, on Monday afternoon, however, we see Peter taking a thousand steps backward. Where Jesus once again says it and he says that, I'm going to go up to Jerusalem. I'm going to suffer many things at the hands of the chief priests and elders and scribes. I'm going to be killed, and on the third day, I'm going to rise again. Well, and Peter then does something that very few people do in Jesus' inner circle. And this is when we see Peter rebuke Jesus. Now, when it says that Peter rebuked Jesus, It's the same word that we find when Jesus rebukes evil spirits and demonic entities out of people. So he's admonishing Jesus and he's saying that's not going to happen. And and yet it is coming from a place, you know, it's not a malicious rebuke. Rather, it's coming from this place of love and loyalty. He's showing Jesus his devotion and he's... And he's pulling Jesus aside and he's saying, Jesus, just get that out of your mind right now. You don't have to worry about anybody killing you because that's not going to happen on my watch. A little bit later on, he also elaborates that. And he says that even if I have to go to jail with you, heck, even if I have to die with you, Jesus, I'm I'm not going to let that happen. I will be proclaiming you until the very end. 
And yet it's in this moment, though, where Jesus rebukes Peter. He says, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You do not have, you know, the ways of God in your mind. You're living for the ways of man. Ouch. (laughs) I mean, that was the rebuke of rebukes. I'm telling you guys, transformation hurts. I mean, Jesus came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came to save his people from their sins and to destroy the works of the evil one. And yet Peter has the very best of intentions. He thinks that he is coming to Jesus' defense and he's showing his loyalty to him. But as he speaks, it's Peter's mouth moving. It's Peter's voice being heard. And yet Satan is speaking. Jesus is having conversation with his disciple Peter. And and yet as he hears what is coming out of Peter's mouth, Jesus is processing, wait a minute, that's not Peter. That is the adversary. That's the accuser. That's the one who is spewing lies and venom and poison whenever he is speaking. No, Peter is not a horrible person. He's not trying to be Satan. He just happens to be living for for the things of the world. He's setting his heart and his mind on the things below rather than on the things which are above. Sometimes I set my heart on the things below. Sometimes you have in your own mind the things of men. And yet by defending Jesus with, with earthly pursuits, He thinks that he is defending Jesus, but he's actually opposing Jesus and speaking as a conduit of Satan. Selah. In thinking that he was defending Jesus with the pursuits of the world, he was actually opposing Jesus and speaking as a conduit of Satan. Yet not very long after this, though, Jesus has now entered into Jerusalem. And he's come to a place called Gethsemane, and it's late in the evening. As the old hymn um, is depicting there, all around was silent, save the night winds wail. Everything is dark, everything is silent, until he begins to see, approaching in the distance, the reddish-orange flames of um, of torches and lanterns. And the ominous sound of conversation and violent footsteps approaches them. And then, sure enough, he sees chief priests and scribes and elders. He sees an innumerable host of Roman soldiers all armed to the teeth with with clubs and with swords. And there, right in the middle of the fray, is, is a smiling and a grinning Judas Iscariot. So we come to our text in Matthew chapter 26 and verse 49. And Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend. And then he says, Do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
And behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword are going to perish by the sword. So we see it in this time in which Peter is living, but we also see it in our own age, don't we? Is that we live in a world of violence. Just one week ago, tomorrow morning, Russian rockets had pounded Kharkiv in Ukraine. And among the massacred casualties in this explosion and in this rocket attack were multiple young children. There were reports of women missing legs and other body parts. Here's a picture of a dear friend of Amanda's whose name is Natasha. She lives in Russia. She's holding an anti-war sign. It's just a few days ago, but Amanda told me that a man who Natasha doesn't even know walked up and spit on her shoe. And her grandfather kept on circling the area, shooting a disapproving glare in her direction. That's because... Protesting a war is against the law there. That is an arrestable offense. And yet blowing up children in an apartment complex with rocket launchers, shooting nuclear factories, smashing cars on the highway in tanks, well, all of that is perfectly sanctioned. And it just goes to show how screwed up this world is. And yet, it really shouldn't surprise us, should it? Because after all, we live in a world of violence. I mean, there's a lot of people who bask in awe at the very most violent among us. People look at Vladimir Putin riding horses without a shirt on and saying that I will nuke anybody who I don't like. And and they're just like, wow, that is the portrait of strength. That's a portrait of great power. You know, I look at that exact same image and I say, meh, that's the portrait of a sad little man. Because after all, what is a dictator besides a sad little man who wasn't hugged as a boy? Who's got to take all of that fury and rage and violence out on the whole wide world. And yet it shouldn't surprise us because we live in a violent world. And by far, one of the most absolute, strangest, and most baffling things that I've ever encountered is this love affair with violence in the church. Where many years ago, I would stand up and I would proclaim the resurrection of Jesus Christ with with a lot of exuberance. I would say that he rescued us from our past and who we used to be, but I look out into the pews. And there are literally people snoring, asleep, disinterested, disengaged, rolling their eyes sometimes, just saying, come on, preacher, let's get this over with. Come on, come on, let's just go. And we sing hymns of praise to God, and we sing to God be the glory, and There's people yawning, and it just sounds and it looks like a funeral home. 
Somebody brings up guns in the Second Amendment and killing our enemies, and all of a sudden there is this energy and excitement and exuberance that is just filling the whole room. But it really shouldn't surprise any of us, because after all, we live in a world of violence. And as Peter is standing there in the Garden of Gethsemane, just you know, not very long earlier, Jesus instructed his apostles, go out and buy a sword. They are on their way to Jerusalem, and they are just about to cross a road that Jesus even speaks about in his parable of the Good Samaritan, where, where people all the time would get jumped and attacked and robbed. So he says, buy a sword. And yet, as Jesus says, by a sword, though, I, I just imagine that the eyes of the apostles are just lighting up. It's like, finally, this guy is about to get violent. Yes. Finally, he's going to make Jerusalem what it once was, and we're going to conquer the Romans and all of that. And in our text, when it says that they seized Jesus, this, this is a Greek word which which is connoting strong and aggressive force. What this means is that as Jesus is being arrested, they are just muscling Jesus around, shoving him around in the back of the head, perhaps. And so Jesus' dear friend Peter is seeing all of this, and, and I mean Peter with just two seconds to respond, he's got all of this, this um, adrenaline and impulse coursing through his body. He clenches his teeth. He pulls his sword out of its sheath and he just starts swinging at random and he chops the guy's ear off. For the second time in this evening, Peter believes that he's rushing to Jesus' defense. And in Peter's defense, I mean, he, he's keeping a promise that he made to Jesus in his mind. I mean, I promised Jesus that I would, I would you know, I was willing to go to jail and even to the grave with Jesus defending him. And now it's like, I don't care if I have to take on an entire Roman legion of um, Roman soldiers all by myself. If that is, is what it calls for defending Jesus, then that's what I'm going to do. And you just got to love Peter. He is honoring Jesus to the best of his ability. And yet for the second time in this evening, though, Jesus rebukes Peter. In Luke's account, he says, stop, no more of this. In Matthew's account, he says, put your sword away, Peter. That's because he thought that he was defending Jesus. When all along, all that he's doing is defaming Jesus. What he's showing to their absolute worst critics in the Jewish Sanhedrin, as well as in the Gentile world, is that Jesus is just like all the other violent revolutionaries. He's just another revolutionary who has his 15 minutes of fame, gets violent, and then he is just going to go away and fizzle out. I mean, we live in a violent world, don't we? And yet I'm so glad, though, that that is not the only option that we have. Because in Jesus, we are given such a better way to be human. And that's really what the kingdom of heaven is. It, is. it is life upon the earth reimagined by Jesus. Where even in the face of unlawful arrest, 
having his human rights snatched away from him, being dragged into an illegal courtroom, all of this, while all of this happens, we see the strange, gentle, otherworldly response to a world of violence. Whereas Jesus is speaking to the man who had literally just betrayed him, His feet are still dripping wet after Jesus washed his feet maybe an hour earlier. and Now he's just stabbed Jesus himself in the back. But as Jesus speaks to his betrayer, he calls him. Notice in the text, he says, friend. He's still claiming Judas Iscariot as his friend. Greater love has none than this. That one lay down his life for his Yeah, friends. Then he also says, friend, do what you came to do. I mean, he's not hiding away from this. He's not running away from it. He's saying that you don't even have to drag me to the high priest or to the Sanhedrin. I'll tell you guys what, I'll race you there. And I'll be the first one to see him. And yet most beautifully in Jesus' response, though, Jesus once again extends his kind, his gentle, and his healing touch of kindness. The man who Peter attacked, his name is Malchus. Malchus is just a nobody slave who is working at the behest of the high priest. So Judas betrays Jesus. He hands him over. Malchus grabs Jesus, but then out of the corner of Malchus's eye, he can see what appears to be the whir of a sword approaching him. Suddenly there is this explosion of pain, this deafening white noise ensuing as he falls backwards screaming, clutching a gaping hole in his head as it gushes and drowns his hands in blood. And he's in a posture as if to say, I can't hear, I can't hear, I can't hear. And then all of a sudden he feels a hand pressing up against his head. He feels the blood instantaneously dry up within him and his ear somehow, some way is then restored to his head as if it never left him. And then looking up at him, he sees the face of Jesus. And Jesus then turns and he says to Simon Peter again, he says, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? He will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. But, but how could the scriptures be fulfilled if I were to do that? What is Jesus saying to Peter? He's saying, Peter, I don't need you or anybody else to fight violent wars in my defense. I need you to plant my church. I want you to learn to love people the way that I do. I want you to bring heaven down to earth in the way that you respond to the circumstances that befall you. We may remember in Old Testament imagery how how one time in Scripture, one angel, one angel struck down 185,000 Assyrians. You see, what Jesus is saying to Peter is that at any moment in time, if I want to, 
I can instantly command more than 72,000 angels to come and to light this place up. I mean, that's enough angelic firepower to destroy not just the world, but the entire galaxy and then some. You think Putin has power. Jesus has that detonator in his hand and he can press it whenever he wants. And yet instead, he smashed the detonator. He broke it, destroyed it. And he says to even his betrayer friend, do what you came to do. And that's because the Son of Man did not come to be rescued, but to rescue. We see it all the time in the world, don't we? How one nation invades another, and unless you go to war against that nation to fight back, you're not going to have a country anymore. You're going to lose freedoms and a lot of lives, but that's what a nation has to do in this world. And yet in the church that is about to be built, though, Jesus, his holy spiritual nation, though, is, is not like the nations of this world. So much better, so much more beautiful, and so much, um, just a much different nation than that. No, Jesus never says, get rid of your sword. He never says that you're not allowed to have a sword. He says, go get a sword. But what he does say is, don't hope in the sword. Don't put all of your trust as a human being in that sword. Don't make it all that you're speaking about and living for. Neither is this a condemnation of our Second Amendment. I mean, each and every one of us as American citizens has a Second Amendment. We can buy guns if we want to. That's okay. And yet if we love the Second Amendment more than the Second Great Commandment, we're not setting our minds on the things of God. We're setting our minds on the things of men. We're not living for the kingdom of God. We're living for the kingdom of hell. Live by the AR-15. Die by the AR-15. Live by the Second Amendment. Die by the Second Amendment. And yet live by the Sermon on the Mount and the fruits of the Spirit. And the people we encounter will encounter Jesus. And heaven's going to come down to earth. And yet, you know, there's just so much more to this story, though, than, than about swords and guns and amendments. There's such a larger conversation for us to have this morning, and that is, is that the swords that we swing. King Solomon writes in Proverbs chapter 12 and verse 18, that there is one whose rash words are like the th thrusting of a sword. But the tongue of the wise brings healing. We all know what that is like, don't we? We all know how that feels. Just how much damage can be done where in the heat of the moment someone spouts off words that were not carefully chosen. When our speech and our rhetoric is, is um, reckless and it's violent... Solomon is saying that our speech can actually take on the form of a sword swinging wildly at control at the ears of other people. And I think it's safe to say that this is a sword that we've all been struck by many times over. 
is a sword that we have swung many times over as well, isn't it? And you know, the older that I get, the more that I'm finding is that there are a lot of toxic, angry people in the world, aren't there? And most of them are religious. I know of a minister who had to block more than 400 people on Twitter. He's trying to talk about Jesus, but, but all they want to do is spew venom in Jesus' name. All they want to do is say, oh, I hate those Muslims, and I hope they all get nuked off the face of the earth and firebombed. Oh, I just hate LGBTQ, and, and I just hope God sends them all to hell right now. And you just hear all of this rage and venom, and the world, meanwhile, is walking around saying, I can't hear, I can't hear, I can't hear. People in cathedrals are wondering, why won't they show up to our services? Why won't they just listen to the gospel? Well, it's because their ears were chopped off. No wonder they can't hear a word that we're saying. And on occasions such as this, Jesus from his holy throne looks down and pronounces once again upon us. And he says, stop. No more of this. Put your sword away. And when we take the sword of the Spirit, and we use God's holy scriptures as a weapon of shame in the lives of other people, and manipulation and guilt tripping, we wonder, well, where are all of the young people in our services? Why won't they show up and hear what we have to say? Maybe it's because you had just told her that because her husband had divorced her and she married somebody else that she's going to hell and God doesn't love her anymore? Maybe that had something to do with it? <laughs> and yet I know so many people my age who are walking around wounded saying, I can't hear, I can't hear, I can't hear. Because somebody chopped my ear off. And they chopped it off in Jesus' name with the sword of the Spirit itself. Jesus once again pronounces from heaven, Stop! No more of this. Put your sword away if that's how you're going to use it. 20 years ago, I used to memorize Scripture. I would hide God's word in my heart, but, but mainly with the intention of winning a debate, if I should ever have one about baptism or about this or about that. Well, I can use this verse and I can go to that verse and I can theologically humiliate them. And what Jesus impressed on my young heart in that juncture of my life was stop. No more of this. Put your sword away. Until you learn how to use it the way that I want you to. Because David, I don't need you to do that. I don't need you to go around winning religious debates in my name. I need you to hide my words in your heart so that you will not sin against me. In order that you will stand before people and teach the truth in love. And to have great patience as you instruct other people. And you speak on my behalf. While you're at it, be very patient with yourself, too. 
Rash words, Solomon says, are like sword thrust. How about the tongue of the wise brings healing? And isn't this such a glorious contrast? Is that calm, gentle, loving, wise, affirmative, contemplative speech is to our souls what Jesus' hand was to Malchus' head? And you know, the thing is, is that 2,000 years ago, there was just one Malchus with just one ear on the ground. And yet we're living in a world of Malchuses today. We got, we got Malchuses running around all over the place like this. They just can't hear. And yet Solomon says that, that when, when we have wise and contemplative tongues and, and calm, humble tongues, it brings about healing in the way that they hear. Well, we may be wondering, how can we speak in that way? But I mean, the answer is right under our noses in our text. Because after all, what was Jesus doing just before he was arrested and he healed Malchus? He was praying his heart out in John chapter 17. He was praying so fervently in the Garden of Gethsemane that his blood was falling on the ground in the form of his sweat. And while Jesus is, is praying, what else is he doing? He's watching and he's waiting for his arresting mob to come to him. He's already ready to react to them. Well, contrast that to his, his disciple Peter. What is Peter not doing? just shortly before Jesus' arrest. He's not praying. He's not watching or waiting. He's asleep. He is detached from God's presence. Notice that until Jesus prayed, Jesus didn't want to die. I mean, he didn't want to go through with this whole business of being arrested and crucified, and I don't blame him for that. But when Jesus had immersed himself in the transformative furnace that is prayer, well, then Jesus is emerging from that hour of prayer with not my will, but let your will be done. And now and only then, he was ready to lay his life down for a violent world. He was ready to bring peace rather than violence. And he was ready to unleash heaven rather than unleash hell. I mean, how can you not love Peter? I mean, sure, he denied Jesus three times. He spoke, and it was Satan speaking. He whipped out a sword and got violent, but what he's showing us here, through his mistake, is that before we get violent for Jesus, and we rush off to some unholy war in his name that he doesn't even want us to wage, our Father who is in heaven is such a better response and is such a holier reaction than hearing Jesus say to us, Stop. No more of this. Put your sword away. Let's go to God in prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are, are so wonderful. And even though we have walked with you all these years, so often there is still so much violence in our hearts. 
We've got vitriol that we harbor against other people or groups of people. When we speak about other people, when we speak about our brothers and sisters, our spouses, as we speak to whoever it is, God, I pray that we will remember Malchus and speak in such a way that that has a healing agency to those who hear.